Anyone over 40 probably has very vivid memories of September 11th, 2001. I certainly do. I can remember how angry I was in those first few days. Or months, really. I was angry over the event itself, of course, and for the loss of life, and for the sheer disorder that had been unleashed in our world. But as the days and weeks and months wore on, I became especially angry over how confused otherwise sane and well-educated people were about the threat we now faced. What I saw all around me was a kind of implosion of moral intelligence, and those who saw our enemy clearly were often driven by their own dogmatic religious beliefs. In my experience, the only people in the U.S. who could be counted upon to understand what we faced were fundamentalist Christians, which gave me very little basis for hope that we would play our cards right. As many will remember, the sky on the East Coast on 9-11 was unusually beautiful. It was a condition that's apparently described as severe clear by pilots. Most of us had never heard that phrase until after it was used on 9-11 to describe the unlimited visibility of that morning. It strikes me as a very apt phrase to describe how I felt on that day, and really ever since, more or less from the moment that the second plane, United Flight 175, crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. From that moment forward, I have been unusually alert to the power of bad ideas. Up until the moment that the second plane hit, it was possible to imagine that what had happened at the North Tower had been an accident. I don't actually remember what I was thinking at the time. In fact, I'm not entirely sure what time I started watching the news coverage that morning, because it was very early on the West Coast. But I remember the difference between understanding that one plane had crashed into the World Trade Center and understanding that two planes had. And that difference is extraordinary. With the first plane, more or less everyone thought that they were witnessing a tragedy. And whether it was some kind of horrific navigation error or mechanical malfunction, I mean, what could it be? Condoleezza Rice, Bush's national security advisor, had been briefed that July about an impending al-Qaeda attack, even one that might involve the use of hijacked aircraft. But upon learning that a plane had hit the North Tower, even she reports thinking, well, that's a strange accident. And that doesn't actually surprise me. I mean, there's no question that 9-11 represents a massive failure of intelligence. And this is something that's well documented in Lawrence Wright's book, The Looming Tower. But in the moment, in the presence of the unthinkable, it is hard to think clearly. No question. There were 17 minutes between Flight 11 hitting the North Tower and Flight 175 hitting the South. So there were 17 minutes to live with the illusion that we were witnessing a tragic accident and its horrible aftermath. Flight 11 had hit the North Tower between the 93rd and 99th floors. 
no one outside the building could have known this at the time, but it had destroyed all the stairwells, trapping over a thousand people above the point of impact. So I believe it's true to say that no one who was above the 92nd floor in the North Tower survived. And in those 17 minutes, many things happened that are very hard to think about, and some seem very hard to understand. First, in the South Tower, many people saw no need to evacuate. In fact, people who did begin evacuating were told to return to their desks. Even in the North Tower, many people who were below the zone of impact felt no urgency to evacuate. They thought the fire department would just put out the fire. And many thought they were being responsible in leaving the stairways clear for the fire crews to ascend. It's just an amazing detail, given what was about to happen. It seems almost no one had an inkling that a fire of that sort could lead to a structural failure, and that the whole tower could collapse. We have testimony from people in the South Tower who gathered at the north-facing windows and watched as papers came billowing out of the North Tower and rained down on Lower Manhattan like confetti. And then suddenly came the recognition that some of the objects that were falling were, in fact, people. An estimated 50 to 200 people jumped or fell out of the towers before they collapsed. There's the famous falling man image that appeared on September 12th in newspapers all over the world and then never appeared again. And I believe some news organizations briefly ran videos of people jumping. But then everyone seems to have decided that that was just too much. And it was too much. However, even in some of the more benign videos that just show the towers burning at some distance, you can still hear the crash of people hitting the ground. There's just no getting around it. There is something especially heartbreaking about these jumpers on a day when everything was heartbreaking. So just imagine what it was like to be in the South Tower, witnessing this horror unfold, or standing on the street looking up. It's just an impossible moment that would seem to admit of no further possibility of astonishment, right? And then comes the roar of the engines of Flight 175, traveling at nearly 600 miles an hour. There are several videos of this, and they never cease to be astounding. And the imagery aside, even the sound is astounding. We never hear the sound of a large commercial airliner flying at full speed, up close. That roar of the engine alone told us that something was profoundly wrong with the world. So what changed with the second plane? Well, it proved the intentionality of the act, and the suicidality of it, and therefore it established its ideological origins. In fact, it established the truth of what was happening as fully as it would have if you could have heard the hijackers shrieking Allahu Akbar from the cockpit of the plane. With one plane, the same behavior could have been the result of mental illness, right? But not with two, right? The severely mentally ill don't organize in this way. So in that moment, everyone was asking the question, what force on earth 
could get people to do something like this. And those of us who knew something about the differences among the world's religions didn't have to spend very long searching for an answer. I don't remember how long it took to implicate al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. As I recall, bin Laden said something celebratory but somewhat ambiguous soon thereafter, but didn't take clear credit for 9-11 until around 2005 or 2006. But very soon, I think within 24 hours or 48 hours at most, the fact that we were dealing with Islamic extremists of some sort was established. And then the experience for me was something like a feeling of limitless clarity on a few points, along with an ability to spot the moral confusion of others at what seemed like a very great distance. Of course, this will sound utterly tendentious and even delusional to those of you who disagree with me about the connection between extremist Islam and Islam, or those who imagine that America has no standing to even complain about the events of September 11th, because we've always been the world's worst terrorist state. These are obscenely stupid positions. But they are not straw men. I've argued with these people ever since. The moral relativists and the people who think there's no real connection between any religious ideology and human behavior. The anthropologists and sociologists who have convinced themselves that religion is always a pretext for economics or social status or politics or some other terrestrial variable. There are seemingly unlimited numbers of overeducated people who imagine that nobody really believes in paradise. Not really. And I spent more than a decade arguing with these people. And I'm honestly not sure what the result of all of that has been. But I know that I don't have anything new to say on the topic. It's such a simple point, and I am always mystified that people don't see it or refuse to see it. Some political scientist will emphasize the territorial claims of certain jihadists or their sense of humiliation, say. But when we look at the claims themselves, when we hear what these people say, both in their public and private conversations, in many cases we know what they say in private, it always comes down to one thing above everything else. Paradise. Yes, Osama bin Laden objected to the presence of foreign troops on the Arabian Peninsula. That's what motivated him. So that sounds like a quasi-rational political grievance, right? But American troops were there at the request of the Saudi government. We had saved them from a likely invasion by Saddam Hussein. They wanted us there. Osama bin Laden's grievance was theological. It was, in his view, a sacrilege to have infidels in the Holy Land. Muhammad himself had said there should be no two religions there. And bin Laden was rich enough to do anything he wanted with his life. There is no economic explanation for what he chose to do. And the religious explanation is perfectly explicit and perfectly rational, given the requisite beliefs. I mean, if after all we've witnessed in the intervening years, Having seen privileged people living in the West 
joined the ranks of the Islamic State by the thousands, dropping out of medical school in London to join the caliphate. If you think it's all just politics and economics and social bonding that gets people to behave this way, well, then I think there really is no reaching you. And in that case, you are as far from the reality of what happened on 9-11 as the 9-11 truth conspiracy theorists are. These people who took what was probably the most witnessed event in human history and turned it into a kaleidoscope of paranoid illogic. At one point, 16% of Americans claimed to believe that 9-11 was an inside job, that we did it to ourselves, to motivate a war in Iraq, to steal their oil, right? Rather than just purchase the oil, we decided to fly planes into our own buildings and murder ourselves and start a couple of wars, because that would have been, what, less expensive? Of course, this prefigured all the madness that was to come. I mean, this was before social media. Can you imagine what 9-11 would have been like if we were all on Twitter? There were people, there probably still are, who believe that the planes weren't planes, that the Pentagon had been hit by a missile, not American Flight 77. It didn't matter that some people had spoken to their loved ones on that flight, up until the moment of impact. It didn't matter that others had seen the plane crash into the Pentagon with their own eyes. It didn't matter that there were plane parts on the ground. Right? No, it was a missile, proving the involvement of our own military. In fact, some people believe that the planes that hit the Twin Towers weren't planes either. They were holograms. And they believe that the voicemail messages from the doomed passengers were faked by CIA technology. And they believe that all the people who were supposed to have been on those planes were quietly murdered by our government. And they believe that the towers collapsed not because these buildings weren't designed to absorb the impact of fully fueled passenger jets. No, they had been rigged to explode. For months, an army of psychopaths had smuggled explosives into these buildings in the dead of night. Now, you can take a few of those preposterous assertions a la carte, or you can take the whole lot. That's what millions of our neighbors claim to believe about 9-11 before the advent of social media. Can you imagine what would happen now? Anyway, back in the real world, we launched a war on terrorism which was always a misnomer, as many of us noted at the time. And terrorism is just a tactic. It's like declaring a war on war. It's nonsensical. A war on jihadism makes sense, as does a war on Islamic extremism. And that's what it was, and is, and will remain. But of course, saying as much is perilously close to declaring a war on Islam, and would undoubtedly be perceived as such by millions of Muslims, and by millions of morally confused secular liberals. But the second plane changed everything. And then when it seemed that nothing could have produced further astonishment and horror, the South Tower fell. Falling isn't even the right concept. What was that that happened? The building was almost extinguished. It seemed to be reduced to powder 
along with the lives of everyone trapped inside. And again, there was the sound of it, the roar it made. And then the sight of the people in the streets trying to outrun the cloud of dust and ash and falling debris that engulfed lower Manhattan. And once this happened to the first tower, we all knew that it would be mere minutes before it happened to the second one. And this was truly the moment that stands a good chance of being the most witnessed event in human history. In fact, they watched the second tower come down from the International Space Station. Of course, it was also the downing of Flight 93 and the attack on the Pentagon. But the destruction of the World Trade Center was so horrible and so cinematic that they inevitably seemed like footnotes to that day. So, when I think about 9-11, I suspect like most people, I think about the footage of the planes, generally the second plane, and the collapse of the towers. I think to understand 9-11 and what it means for civilization in the 21st century, we must understand how differently this event was perceived throughout the world. When you consider how little the operation cost, you train four pilots on simulators in Florida and California, and you recruit 15 other true believers to help them take control of the airplanes, you purchase 19 box cutters, you hold that up against the sheer scale and spectacle of what happened. Reducing the World Trade Center to dust before the eyes of all humanity and panicking the world's lone superpower and distorting its foreign policy and domestic policy for decades and in a way that totally serves your recruitment interests. That is, until you start getting killed by drones and Navy SEALs. For the better part of a decade, it's hard to know what to compare 9-11 to in terms of the operation's success. It's like if you imagine a minor league baseball game and one of the worst batters comes up to the plate and not only hits a home run, but hits the ball into orbit around the earth. I mean, just think about what it must have been like to have been Osama bin Laden or Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on 9-11. Has anyone ever so fully realized their aims. When seen from the point of view of Islamic extremists everywhere, not just Osama bin Laden or members of Al-Qaeda, but in the eyes of anyone who celebrated on that day, this was one of the most successful enterprises that could be imagined. It may sound grotesque to put it that way, and it is grotesque, but it's simply true psychologically from the point of view of everyone who wanted these events to unfold, and for anyone who may have been as surprised as we were by those images from New York, but who ratified this atrocity with their shrieks of happiness. And we know this was millions of people, not just a few thousand incels who trained with bin Laden in Afghanistan. There were millions of people who rejoiced on that day. Of course, many of these millions would have told you that the Jews knocked down those towers, had you asked them a few months later. We're dealing here with wheels within wheels of conspiracy thinking and lies and 
tribal hatreds, and delusion. But we've talked to enough of these people and run enough opinion polls in Muslim countries to know that with some subset of the Muslim world, we've been mired in a religious war for quite some time. And on their side, it will never be anything other than a religious war. Of course, the question is, what should we do about that? And this is very much an open question, probably more open now than it has ever been. Seemingly to coincide with the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we've now pulled out of Afghanistan, ending our longest war, effectively losing our longest war, though it is hard to imagine what winning it could have looked like. And what everyone thinks about our leaving Afghanistan, there's no question that how all of this unfolded represents another victory for the world's jihadists. And I say that thinking that a good case can be made for our having left. And a good case could be made that we should have left well over a decade ago. Perhaps we should have left the moment we failed to get Osama bin Laden at Tora Bora. But I don't think any sane person can think that the way we left Afghanistan was acceptable. And the responsibility for our incompetence falls on both Biden and Trump. Trump started the process. He capitulated to the Taliban, and he undermined the Afghan government. And he committed us to leaving this year. But Biden and his team of ostensible grown-ups implemented this policy about as badly as could have been feared. So I've been extremely critical of Biden, both on this podcast and on Twitter in recent weeks. And many very silly and very confused people have interpreted what I've said as an admission that I made a terrible mistake in not supporting Trump. Now, of course, that's absurd. Right? There is no reason to think that Trump would have done a better job withdrawing us from Afghanistan. In fact, his initial moves were part of why it went so badly. He obliged the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban fighters from prison. He was planning to bring the Taliban to Camp David. There is absolutely no reason to think he would have done a better job than Biden did. And it's quite reasonable to think that his messaging about the resulting catastrophe would have been worse. Right? I mean, he could have easily said things like, What's wrong with the Taliban? They've always been very nice to me. I hear some of them like golf. Perhaps we can play around at Trump National Bedminster. It's a wonderful course. And if they do any more terrorism over there, we might just nuke them. Trump was and is a moral lunatic. So, no matter how much I criticize Biden, there is no implication that I think it would have been better to have Trump in charge. Thus far, Biden has taken no responsibility for how needlessly chaotic and disgraceful our exit from Afghanistan has been. And I'm not sure this is a recoverable error. It might be, politically. but. Should it be? I have no idea. I mean, I'm about as critical of Biden at this point as almost any Trump supporter. I'm just more critical of Trump. And as far as I can tell, that's an entirely coherent position. We just had terrible choices in 2020 for the presidency. Anyway, the question of what America should be doing outside her own borders now seems unusually open. And the signs of our decline 
as a superpower are becoming pretty startling. I mean, there may be no graceful way to cease to be a superpower. We have military bases in more than 70 countries. That might well be worth rethinking. But there may be no way to recalibrate our sense of responsibility and entitlement and our sense of being implicated in local conflicts throughout the rest of the world. There may be no way to refocus our attention more and more at home that doesn't come with an intolerable cost in global disorder and ultimately domestic pain. I recently heard Neil Ferguson make a fairly alarming analogy on Barry Weiss's podcast. He said that being moved by slogans like, we can't be the world's policemen, is a little bit like shouting, defund the police here at home, which is to say, basically moronic, and in the end, masochistic. And he might be right. If we pull back from the world militarily, we probably won't like what fills the vacuum, which it seems certain will increasingly be China. The Chinese Communist Party will be happy to empower medieval autocratic regimes everywhere with 21st century technology. But with respect to Afghanistan, no matter how despairing or cynical one might be about our misadventure there, it's impossible to say that ceding the country to the rule of the Taliban is a good thing. It simply isn't a good thing. It is a manifest evil. And it seems very likely that we will one day be fighting in that country again, in some form. And perhaps it'll just be the occasional covert operation. But it seems likely that Afghanistan is going to become Shangri-La for jihadists. And what happens in Kandahar probably won't stay there. Which, paradoxically, could make our 20-year engagement in Afghanistan look reasonable in hindsight. Because since 2001, we've managed to keep the problem of jihadism mostly outside of our borders. I think we've lost about 100 people to jihadist attacks within the U.S. since 2001. Which, given the possibilities, and given what seemed likely 20 years ago, has to be considered a great success. And surely our disruption of terror networks and the killing of jihadists around the world played a role in that success. And perhaps our time in Afghanistan was an essential part of this. I simply don't know. But we're about to see what the world is like with the Taliban free to remake Afghanistan in their own image. And they get to do that with an immense amount of military equipment that we left behind in our rush for the exit. But it may well be time for us to reckon with the limits of our power. At this point, the whole project of nation-building seems doomed. Some countries and cultures may not be ready for democracy. So perhaps we need to rethink how we engage with these societies, particularly in the aftermath of any necessary military action. And there may even be a case to be made for our military engagements being entirely covert. This would raise other problems, the problem of abuses of power and excessive uses of force that we wouldn't and shouldn't support. But Advertising our intrusions into Muslim societies has always come with its own costs, given what so many millions of Muslims believe, and given the depths of their religious tribalism. 
a tribalism I would point out that most Christians don't share at this point. Where have been all the protests around the mistreatment of Christians in the Muslim world? Where have been the calls to military adventure to liberate the Christians of the Middle East? Perhaps a few people have rallied to this cause, but nothing like that has happened at scale. This is an asymmetry that is worth noticing. And generally speaking, we need to find a way of protecting open societies everywhere without doing the PR work for the jihadists. And that, as we've learned over the last 20 years, is very difficult to do. However, one thing that we cannot afford to lose is a clear understanding of what we face, which should have been inscribed on our minds permanently 20 years ago when the second plane hit the World Trade Center. I'm sure that much of what I've just said sounds anachronistic to many of you. Most of you have surely moved on from this issue. The truth is, I've moved on. And the mainstream media has certainly moved on. In America, we've all had the luxury of moving on. As I said, only a hundred people or so have been killed by jihadists within our borders in the last 20 years. But there is absolutely no reason to believe that the jihadists have moved on. And we will have to confront them again and again for the rest of our lives. And in doing so, we have to remember that we are not confronting the normal range of human aspirations. These are not people who just want what we want, and we just have to figure out how to play nice and share our toys. These are not rational actors, or rather they're all too rational within the framework of an utterly delusional worldview. The thing we have to understand and never lose sight of is that specific forms of religious certainty are deadly, and they are contagious. So, as I think I said somewhere in the end of faith, we will continue to shed blood in what is, at bottom, a war of ideas. Thanks for listening.